This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 is brought to you by Fits for Good. I have to remind myself all the time when I'm interacting with students that both in a positive sense and in a negative sense, you really don't know what influence you are having on other people's lives. Did that sort of sarcastic remark that I made stop this kid from ever developing in a particular direction? You have to remind yourself, somewhere along the line, you may well have changed someone's life, and you never know when. This is Wit Impact for Good, and I'm Eusebius McKaiser. As a student, Professor Bob Scholes intuited early on that his academic, social, and activist life would be dedicated to the preservation of the planet. He knew his way of thinking about the world was different to those of his peers, and it was a certain ecology professor of his that encouraged his thinking to flourish and persevere. His work on the climate emergency we are currently facing has taken him around the world sharing his expertise and knowledge on the evidence and science associated with global warming and climate change. The systems that I study are complex and what complex means is that there are important feedback loops in them and those feedback loops aren't simply proportional. If you just double this, it doesn't double that. Sometimes if you double this, you know, it has a much bigger effect or a much smaller effect than you would have expected. In this podcast series, we explored different fields of academia, activism and research, which has led the way both here and abroad in solving the world's most pressing challenges. The Wits originators we feature are interesting, inspiring and are actively changing the world around them. Systems ecology is the study of ecosystems on a grand scale, looking at different organisms and how they interact and work together. Professor Scholes' work and research looks at how different systems and disciplines borrow from one another to ensure that society and the world we live in functions optimally. Professor Bob Scholes, thank you so much for being part of the Wits Originators series. It's an absolute pleasure to be in conversation with you and um, I'm delighted that you have agreed to do exactly that. Uh, Eusebius, it's a great pleasure. At the risk of sounding like Dr. Phil, Bob, can we go back to your childhood? I'm always fascinated by the intellectual origins of the subjects that we choose once we become adults. Did you always have a deep fascination with the climate and science in general, or did that happen a little bit later? No, I was always interested in science, not specifically climate. My father was an engineer, and my aunt was a science teacher, and so there was always a sort of a climate flavor, at least a a science flavor in in the family. My interest actually came through the environment and really quite early on, I was about 13 years old, I had an epiphany where I decided that the most useful thing I could do with my life was to sort of head off the train smash that I could see coming between humans and the planet. Uh, Remember, this is a long time ago, it was before we had you know, all of the knowledge that we currently have about environmental uh, crises. And at that stage, I didn't ever dream that I would be a scientist. I thought that I would be a practitioner. I would be up there, I don't know, lying down in front of bulldozers or or something (laughs) like that. And it was only when I was a second year university student, I, I took a VAC job working for a very distinguished scientist as a field assistant. At the end of that three months, she said, you know, Bob, you should become a scientist. And I I nearly fell off my seat laughing because as far as I was concerned, you know, scientists were clever people and I wasn't a clever person. That's an interesting, interesting proposition. We 
spoke in this series also to another professor, Musa Manzi, who in his, he actually dropped out of university only to become a geophysicist later and an excellent one at that, world-renowned as well. And it's amazing how not everyone's early pedagogical experiences pick out what it is that they will fall in love with a little bit later. Is there a bad maths and science teacher responsible for that misnomer in the early part of your trajectory? Or did you do well, but you just weren't in love with the subject at school? So so I have to say that my science teaching at school was good. In fact, Uh, my maths teaching was um, spotty. Uh, I wasn't exactly a mathematics cripple when I got to university, but I wasn't a, um, you know, sort of a top math student either. That really wasn't the issue. You know, where I really fell in love with my topic was, again, in my second year at university where I was exposed to a particular professor. And I'd always had this vague feeling in the back of my mind that the way I thought about things was different from the way that other people had thought about it. Remember, back in the day, you know, the school system was pretty rigid. You kind of, you know, you you you, you poured in the one end and you came out the other end like little sausages and you you didn't question, you just got, you know, fed what you were fed. But I always had a feeling that they weren't quite, you know, seeing things the way I saw things. And when I went into my first ecology lecture with then, you know, Professor Brian Walker, it was as if I'd suddenly come home. You know, of course, of course, yes. You know, that's the way I think about these problems as well. And that's what really got me passionate about the direction I ended in up going in, which is systems ecology. And I want to talk about systems ecology and the substantive research that you've become world-renowned for. But I want to talk about Brian for a second. It is remarkable, isn't it, how we can often trace our love affair to a particular discipline or sub-discipline to the, to the particular excellence of a teacher or a lecturer that we encounter. Um, I, for example, in high school, had a really good history teacher who gave me a copy of Thomas Nagel, What Does It All Mean?, a very brief introduction to philosophy. And I ended up doing graduate studies in philosophy here and abroad. And um, I think that if it wasn't for that encounter, I might still have done it. But certainly, it's amazing how the chance encounter with a teacher that just spots in you, or or even if it doesn't spot in you, ignites in you a certain interest, can set you on a lifelong path. That's absolutely true. And it's, it's a very subtle thing, and I have to remind myself all the time when I'm interacting with students that both in a positive sense and in a negative sense, you really don't know what influence you are having on other people's lives. Mm. You know, did that, you know, sort of sarcastic remark that I made, you know, it stopped this kid from, you know, ever developing in a particular direction. And, you know, when you've put in a huge amount of effort and you wonder, was it all worth it? You have to remind yourself, you know, somewhere along the line, you may well have changed someone's life and you never know when. And so that's what keeps us going. Professor Coles, and I'm using your title here deliberately and demonstratively, what is, in English, what is systems ecology? So there's two ways you could think about this. The one is systems being short for ecosystems. So we know that the world works through a series of ecosystems of all kinds of different scales. Some of them are small and some of them, the ones that I work with, are often at the scale of the whole planet. And so 
systems ecology is the ecology which works at big scales. South Africa has always been wonderful at producing ecologists, but most of them typically work on a single organism. I'm, I study the ecology of the African elephant or the ecology mm. of this butterfly. Systems ecologists work with how all of those things work work together. And so they typically look at things which are occurring at scales of many kilometers up to many thousands of kilometers. So it's the kind of big side of, of ecology. The other meaning of the word systems is the sort of ordinary English sense of the way things are connected to one another. And if you look at the philosophical history, if you like, of science in the world, it has largely been reductionist. When we started the science method, maybe three or 400 years ago, one of the tricks was to break things down, to hold all things equal and just you know, separate out a little bit and try to understand it in detail. And that is a very, a very, very successful approach. The problem is that many of the things that we observe are actually because of the interactions between things, not things themselves. Mm. And studying it by breaking them down doesn't help you. You actually have to put them back up together again. And that's what systems theory does. It helps us to build up the interactions between things that we see how the whole behaves. That sounds like incredibly complex ways to understand the way in which things that are normally often studied in a discrete manner, even scientifically, and certainly within the academy more generally, actually cohere together. And in that sense, it seems to me like your discipline is ahead of its time. Its frameworks have been borrowed even by social scientists, uh, economists, even in the humanities, um, Professor Scholes. And we, every second uh, liberal arts person who wants to sound fancy, now talk about systems analysis. And I guess there's a recognition that if you really want to truly understand problems in the world, while it's useful to, for purposes of analysis, have a simple unit that ultimately you do need a synoptic approach if you want to understand the complexity. That's true. And you used a couple of important terms there, one of which is, is complexity. And people get mixed up between complexity and complicatedness. The systems that I study are not necessarily complicated in the way that, for instance, a jet airplane is complicated. It's got millions of moving parts, but each of those parts functions in a completely predictable way. And that's why we're confident in getting into a plane and flying off to the other side of the world. It won't suddenly start behaving, one hopes. The systems that I study are complex. And what complex means is that there are important feedback loops in them. And those feedback loops aren't simply proportional. If you just double this, it doesn't double that. Sometimes if you double this, you know, it has a a, a much bigger effect or a much smaller effect than you would have expected. Mm. And the moment you couple together even just a few things in that complex way, the outcome becomes rather unpredictable. You can expect it to do this, but it does exactly the opposite. Or maybe it just doesn't respond to you at all for a while and then suddenly it takes off. That's mm. the substance of complexity theory. And, you know, that's the, 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 the stuff that I, I work on. And it's true that there are, at this stage, many borrowings between disciplines who are coming to the point where they're all coming to the conclusion that they need to understand these feedbacks and interactions. Mm. So I have certainly borrowed freely from other scientific uh, disciplines, things like physics and mathematics, and I see 
a lot of people, for instance, in the humanity saying, but there are certain human phenomena yeah. which behave exactly like that. Do you have any insights to us? And I've had some very, very fruitful interactions, for instance, with economists, because um, you know economic systems often exhibit those kinds of behaviors. And that's mm. what makes it so difficult, for instance, for us to predict you know, when there might be a financial bubble. We can mm. see the phenomenon building, but we don't know when it's, when it's going to burst. And it's because of these unpredictabilities which are introduced by complexity. Bob, is there scientific orthodoxy about climate change, its reality, and how urgent it remains as a threat to not just human beings, but all living organisms? So I wouldn't call it orthodoxy in the sense of that being a slightly demeaning term that we're all in groupthink. What there <laughs> is, is a very, very high level of consensus amongst people who really have studied this issue that this is a existential problem, in fact, in the true sense of that word. We forget that all the things that we sort of love and take for granted about being human, you know, having creative abilities and be able to live with some degree of, you know, foresight and comfort, those are things which evolved only in the last 10,000 years. Before that, we were just another knuckle-dragging primate. And that occurred within a particular window of climatic stability, which allowed us to domesticate nature and create uh, agriculture. And that created the surpluses that allowed us to build societies and support artists and invent double-entry accountancy and all those good things occurred within this period. And we're now moving out of that period. So I don't believe that climate change will be the end of the world. The world has suffered much greater insults in its past, uh, nor will it necessarily be the end of Homo sapiens. We're a, a wonderfully adaptive uh, organism, even more so than cockroaches, but it may well be the end of civilization as we know and expect it, unless we really start doing uh, some things very differently in the next few decades. Because That's exactly what I want to talk about here in the time that we have left. I want us to talk politics and philosophy in terms of how they intersect with your climate change work. And let's start with the politics. If there is broad scientific consensus, it must be deeply frustrating to see policy interventions that don't always track the evidence or even a lack of regard for the urgency of putting on the agenda the climate change challenges that the planet are facing when we look at the continued destruction of ecologies around the world. What is your diagnosis of what the hell is going wrong in an area adjacent to yours, the body politic? So, you know, the, the, maybe the biggest contribution that I have made scientifically is to work in the area of what we call science policy interfaces. How do we get this knowledge that we have into society in such a way that it can support the decisions which need to be made? And we have developed a whole set of techniques to do that. But one of the realizations that you come to is that science is only one input into that decision-making process. Uh, there are many other things that come into them. And many of those 
are values-based and don't come out of science at all. And mm. as a scientist, of course, initially that is deeply frustrating. They must listen to me. I've got evidence. I know what I'm talking <laughs> about. But of course, not everything that we do as humans you know, comes from that knowledge basis. It comes from all kinds of other ways of knowing, including faith-based ways of knowing, including people's aspirations and their intuitions and their all sorts of things inform that decision. And so we have to learn to be a bit uh, humble about that as, as scientists. So we believe that our knowledge is particularly important for solving this issue, but it's not the only consideration. And we need to work to ensure that all of these things that make us human become aligned in a way that gives a future to our children. Is it important for scientists to be politically literate and to step into the political arena to try and increase the odds of politicians and policy formulators and advisors to take decisions that reflect scientific consensus? It's certainly necessary that some scientists do that. I think it may be a disaster if all scientists did that because we all are very familiar with scientists who would be best kept far away from such debates. But it is necessary for some people to be able to navigate um, that divide. The area I work in is now called transdisciplinarity, and that is where you sort of stretch across these big gaps between how we know things. And what I have come to realize, although I have a great willingness to do that, there's only so far that you can stretch. And as a result, what you actually have to do is develop a trust relationship with people who can pick it up where you leave it off and take it the next steps and pass it over to yet other people. No single person can span that entire range from the sort of fundamental science to you know how you implement it in society. That takes a team and most importantly, takes trust. And trust is built up by practice and social process. Before we actually get to the philosophical question interfacing with your scientific work, I want to ask a question that I suppose is in the transdisciplinary area of our conversation, and that is just in relation to the politics of our region. I mean, you are deeply passionate about systems ecology in relation to Africa and how obviously that and our terrestrial ecosystems in particular, how they slot into the global climate. One thing that, that I've always found very weird, Bob, is that you would have thought that even if you're a politician who's only obsessed about short-termism and not about the long-term, because politicians invariably care about the electoral cycle, that if you do not have evidence-sensitive policies in the area of climate change, that it's particularly millions and millions of poor Africans that are the most vulnerable and the most precarious socially and economically, and that's a ticking political time bomb. Are you worried that, or do you share the worry that that I'm clearly um, implying as my own opinion, that many of our leaders around the region do not grasp the fact, even though it should by now be trite, that being pro-sustainable politics is to be pro-poor. Yes, I am deeply worried about that disconnect. It's not restricted to us. You know, I think you can find examples of that 
all around the world in developed countries and very sophisticated, educated countries, as well as in uh, you know places like South Africa, where we're struggling with many other challenges. I think it's part of our evolutionary past. Hmm. We developed to be able to respond to immediate threats almost instantly. You know, you jump out of the path when you spot a snake without ever even thinking about it. You can take decisive action just like that. But we're, as a species, really very poor at dealing with things which are important but not urgent. We will mm-hmm. always allow things which are urgent to bump them off the agenda. And in the instance of climate change, that's fatal because of the system's properties of climate change. It has a long inertia, several decades inertia. And in other words, by the time it gets important enough to take action, it's already too late. Finally, there's a couple of philosophical questions about science I wanted to toss at you and us as human beings. Are we too anthropocentric or do we humble ourselves often enough as human beings in relation to the rest of the living organisms that we share the planet with, our capacity for the kind of human language that we speak, our ability to subjugate perhaps more successfully than other animals, all of these things give us advantages. And very often the result of that is that we put ourselves at the center of the universe, literally and figuratively. And I just wanted to make reflections on that. So so that really is a very, very deep question. And it's an extension of the discussion we've been having about being able to understand other people's points of views. Mm. We're struggling already to be able to bridge that divide within humanity, Mm. although we can communicate, although we can imagine what other people uh, can think. What you're asking of us, and I agree with you, is in fact an even greater leap of empathy, if you like, to empathy with, you know, the rest of the living world. I think that that move is currently underway. I'm not making a theoretical argument here or an evidence-based argument so much as looking at the grand sweep of history. Mm. This idea that we might have empathy with other people traces itself back to Immanuel Kant, and you know the idea of intrinsic value, and that was nearly three centuries ago. It took that time for us to come to the present day of you know I can't breathe protests for it to take effect. We still haven't crossed that bridge, but I see the same trends going on in terms of people's understanding that in fact we have connections, for instance, with other organisms, the animal rights movement. And I see the next wave of that is, in fact, understanding that we are part of greater systems, ecosystems, if you like. Mm. And I don't mean that in a sense that we should be worshipping those as if they were gods, but to understand that we're not, in fact, in charge of them, we're a part of them. And that way of looking at the world is, in fact, quite common in many societies which we tend to look down on as primitive. They do not find this idea strange at all. And and I think that our salvation as a human species will come for us from us adopting as a fundamental set of core values that kind of worldview. 
Last question I had for you is one you've already touched on, but I want to ask it more explicitly. And it's another big one thematically, but just speak into it for two or three minutes and then we'll close on this question, Bob. And this is about science and values and or science and neutrality. It was very interesting to see recently in our country the frustrations of some members of the scientific community in relation to government policy when it comes to COVID-19. And as you are well aware, some scientists complained that they've been shut out. They're not, it's not clear who is informing government. But there was a subtext out of that criticism, Bob, that almost implied as if a scientific viewpoint, and I'm going to put it loosely for purposes of this podcast, the scientific viewpoint is the viewpoint from nowhere, the objective viewpoint, or the more objective viewpoint. And I wonder whether that is true, or whether you would agree with me that even though you are in the business of coming up with hypotheses and testing them and collecting data that can be corroborated and peer-reviewed and experiments that can, again, be set up under certain conditions to see whether they hold again, that there's a rigor involved in the scientific method. But the way in which science gets taught, or even part of the hidden curriculum in scientific teaching, is to make scientists believe that what they are engaging is value-less, when in fact... They also are deeply committed to ideology and they often don't admit to it. So I'm an enormous fan of the scientific method. You know, I have devoted my entire life to that. That is the tool that I use to understand the world. But I also think that I understand its limitations. And I have an advantage in this in that when I was an undergraduate, uh, before you got your uh, science, your undergraduate science degree, you actually were required to do an arts course. And the arts course that I took was, in fact, philosophy. I very early on learned that there are no, there's no such thing as a completely value-free worldview. I think where people make a mistake is to go from that insight to one that says, therefore, all values under all circumstances are equally powerful. So the scientific set of methods and viewpoints and ways of understanding the world is, I believe, uniquely powerful for the things that it is good at. It's rotten for other things. I don't recommend to my students that they apply the scientific method for selecting their boyfriends and girlfriends, for instance, <laughs> or for answering the really important questions in life, like what's this all about? <laughs> Those are just not tractable to science. Mm. And so we should not be so arrogant as to believe that our knowledge base can address all of the important questions. It's very powerful for those things that it's designed to do. Bob, one of the world's most prestigious environmental scientists, we're lucky to call you one of our own, including here at the University of the Witwatersrand. Thank you so much for being in conversation with me about your academic research and sharing some of your brain with us. Thank you very much. It's been fun. This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 was brought to you by Vets for Good.